please open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 2, we're going to be in. Chapter 2, verse 14 through to the end of the chapter in verse 23. I just want to say hello to anybody who's, uh, who I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. My name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here alongside Vic. Uh, it's my honor to do the preaching, and um, we're, we're coming today to uh, our fourth sermon in this series on the book of Ruth. Beautiful love story. Old Testament, old style, very old-fashioned. But, but in these texts of Scripture, when we find ourselves uh, in a narrative portion of Scripture that tells us a story, uh, it's quite different to picking up a, a theological book like Romans. Now, now, the theology is there, but it's lying under the surface. And it's coming out to us in, in and through the story, but there's a bit of interpretation to do. Uh, the book of Corinthians, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he told them that everything that happened in the Old Testament happened to the Jews, but it was for our instruction that it was written down. It happened to them, but it's for our example that we might read and learn lessons from it. And so that's part of what we're doing in, in this passage, in this uh, whole story, this sermon series is, is looking at the, the doctrine of God's providence in and through every situation, but then also taking from that an example on how we ought to be living as faithful Christians under the rule of Jesus. And then thirdly, of course, our, our endeavor is always, as Scripture is uh, not complete if it is, does not point to Jesus. No preaching on even Old Testament books is ever complete, has not done its job if it does not show us how it points to Jesus and the gospel. So we'll be doing that as well. But I hope now you're in verse 14 of Ruth chapter 2, and we will begin our reading there. And at mealtime, so so I'll I'll just give a bit of a recap. Ruth has uh, been married to a Jewish boy over in uh, Moab where she lived, worshipping the demon god Chemosh. Uh, She was a a pagan gal, married a Jewish guy, but his father and then her husband died. And so she moved back with Naomi, her mother-in-law, choosing rather than staying in a hometown like her sister-in-law did, with her family and remarrying, she decided to bless this widow, love this widow, stay faithful to this widow, and actually return to this God that she worshipped. And that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, she starts working in the field, gleaning. Uh, This is a low-income job, but in order to just get some money, some kind of way to bless her mother-in-law, she begins working in the fields, and we'll re-explain what that looks like. And it is there that she happens, just so happens, as luck would have it, she meets a very handsome older bloke by the name of Boaz, a business owner. We said last week he drove a land cruiser. He's got uh, a lot going for him in life, and they meet. Now, he blessed her last week and said, because I've heard your reputation as the one who blessed Naomi, your mother-in-law, when you had no earthly reason to, and because you've come under the refuge of the, the wings of Yahweh our God, I want to bless you and I pray for you that you would be blessed. And so she works in his field in order to gain some harvest. Now look at what happens in verse 14 onwards. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, And he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. 
When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not rebuke her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man whose name is with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides this, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. May God be glorified as we hear it and obey it. So uh, we're just going to jump straight into the story. This is picking up uh, just later on in the day from the very same day that chapter 2, part 1 was occurring. Uh, That same day, mealtime came around and the the habit was that they (coughs) they would gather around the threshing floor up on the top of the hill where there was a a concrete slab where they would beat out the grain and separate the the husk from the, the, the good grain to eat. And as they do that, they also pan fry, okay, or or roast some of that grain. And that's what they sit around and they eat during their their meal. So at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So he's inviting her, come over and sit with me. I'm the head of this house, right? We're outside, we're in the workplace. But he's saying, I'm boss here. These are all your... Uh, my, my employees, but I'm inviting you, come and sit with me as we eat. Is this a, a romantic gesture? Uh, probably not. He is just, as we're going to see, he's showering her with grace and favor in the presence of other people. Now, this word that comes out as wine in the ESV, it, it could also be meaning a vinegar-based sauce, kind of like a, um, a balsamic vinegar. So, so here we are, we're sitting around, we're eating flatbread, some roasted grain, and balsamic vinegar. If that says one thing to me, right, the guy who brings into the workplace lunchroom, the guy who brings himself some uh, antipasto, he's a classy guy. This guy knows how to eat well, uh, uh, and, and I think we should get that from Boaz, even though this is just a, you know, standard tradey lunch back then that you eat. Uh, this is like his uh, strawberry breaker and his uh, meat pie. Nonetheless, here he is. The, he's invited her to come and eat the breaker and the meat pie with him. Now, what you notice is it says then, but she, so she sat beside the reapers. Now, what he's invited her to do is come sit next to him, 
she has in, in an overwhelming moment of how much blessing he's giving to her and honor in public, she sits down rather with the, the co-workers, with the reapers, rather than with the boss. And he passed to her some roasted grain. Okay, now, um, <clears throat> this, is, uh, uh, this is another act of generosity. The word behind passed to her in the Hebrew can also mean and maybe does mean uh, poured out or created a pile. He piled up for her roasted grain. Okay, she, he invited her to sit at the head with him. She didn't come. Well, he, he spins the lazy Susan and gives her a large portion of fine roasted grain. Or maybe he gets up and he walks over and that seems to be uh, the, the sense of it, that he gives to her in the presence of everybody else some fine, beautiful, satisfying roasted grain. She didn't have much food that she'd gleaned, so he gives to her. This, I think, if we can just take one little practical modern-day step, and I know this isn't really an, an expositional kind of point, but, but gentlemen, if you're going to get to know a lovely young lady well, take her out for a meal. Right? That, that, this is dating 101. I know they're not even romantically involved yet, but they are once you have a meal together. Okay, this is, this is 101. This is so basic. Don't take her to go see the wrestling. Don't take her uh, to go and, <clears throat> go and drive a, a truck. Don't take her to the rally cars. Don't take her to go see a movie. For goodness sake, sit down with this woman that you are seeking and have a meal, and you better pay for it, okay? Sit her down. That's where you can have a conversation. That's where you get to look at her in the eyes and give her attention and focus. I think Boaz shows us just that little bit of an example there, okay, young men? <clears throat> now, this no is not romantic. Let me just say again. What he said back in verse 11 and 12, he's, he's showing with his outward display. Back in 11 and 12, he said uh, that he was amazed for all that Ruth had done for her mother-in-law, and he prayed that God would repay her, a full reward should be given back to her. And so he is, he is in action now doing that very thing, blessing her in the way that she blessed Naomi, blessing her in public, honoring her, giving her this amazing privilege. <clears throat> now, we see then that he is a warm, kind, welcoming man that goes above and beyond what the law required. In Deuteronomy 24 and even verse 19, what, what it commanded was, as we covered a few weeks ago, that landowners and farmers were not allowed to strip their fields bare when they're harvesting. They're not allowed to be stringent on every stalk and take all that their field has produced. And if they drop anything on the ground, they are not allowed to go back and pick it up. This was God's welfare system. That all those who were poor, unemployed, unable to buy a land and cultivate it, they would be able to come into that land and do what we call gleaning which is coming after all those who, uh, th those who work, the reapers, and picking up all the, uh, the bits that they've dropped and even reaping from the field those parts left behind. Now, that's all that the law required of landowners like Boaz. You let her work in your field, you leave some behind, that's enough. Especially as a foreigner, she would be at the back of that line. 
Now, he is not only welcoming her to do that, but also do more than that, as we're going to see in the field. And at mealtime, come and sit with me. You're not going to sit right next to me? That's fine. I'll walk to you, give you an overflow of food. In public, this man is showing what is in his heart, that he is not a legalist who just does as much as he is demanded, but has a heart that loves to be generous, kind, to the foreigner, to the woman. Because he knows, he knows that his mother had experienced just what Ruth is going through. We covered this a few weeks ago, that his mother was that Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who helped Joshua and his men take the city of Jericho. And after that, she's, she's listed for us in the genealogies of Jesus. That's honorable. She's listed for us in the, in the Hebrews 11 uh, 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 list of faithful heroes. And Boaz knows what my mother did was find herself in a group of people in a nation of Israel that did not look on her favorably. My father left a good legacy by showing that we welcome those people in. He even married her, and I am the fruit of that marriage. So let me do that same thing. Show the divine, godly, Jewish heart and welcoming others in. If God can take her under his wings of refuge, I can take her under my wings of refuge and provide. This should be an example for us as leaders, whoever you are in this church, or maybe in your workplace or in other ministries, and just Christians in general. We should be those who welcome others, who are known for welcoming in others, who are cheerful, warm, kind to all people despite race, wealth, backgrounds, any of those types of things, we are, regardless of appearances, but especially to Christians who have come under the same rulership and family and spiritual nation of God in Jesus, especially to the household of faith we do well, but to all people, we open our hearts, we open our hands, we open our pockets, we open our homes. This is a characteristic of Boaz that we should take on board. And that's just the first verse. Now let's go, verse 15. When she rose to glean. Now here's, uh, I'll, I'll finish. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her. Now, now what happens here is Ruth, as verse 14 tells us, she ate all that she could and then she stored away some of that roasted grain that Boaz had given to her that she was not able to finish, okay? So she asks for a doggy bag, and she uh, has some left over, but then she gets straight back up to work. Right? She's a hard-working gal. She knows that I have... <clears throat> this, she's an example for us in this sense, maybe even especially to the young women. She doesn't sit here and ask for a free handout. Okay, she came to the field of Boaz willing to work for her due. That's exemplary. Not sitting back, lazy, asking for a handout. But even after she's been given so much from Boaz, even after she's been given this gracious amount, you could call it a, a handout, it was his generosity, she doesn't then sit down, relax back, and become idle, knowing that, well, he's given me what I need. I don't need to work. But she... 
as this Moabite, we're continually reminded, embodies this Proverbs 31 Israelite women characteristic, this godliness that was shown in Proverbs 31. She works all the harder because of what she's received. Look in uh, Proverbs 31, 13, for example, which says that this woman works with willing hands. This is an example for, for women to, to strive after. She works with willing hands. Verse 27 says that she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So that what we see in this example for women in Ruth and in Proverbs 31 is not that... <clears throat> is that whether you are working in employment or working in the home and your household, that little kingdom that God has given you, you are a hard, constant worker for the good of those that can benefit from your work. And so she gets up to glean. She's full, she's eaten well, but there's still work to do. So she gets up, goes again to the field to start gleaning, picking up the leftovers. And so Boaz says, verse 15, that let her glean even among the sheaves. Don't reproach her, right? So, so let her even, after you've harvested, you lay all these big piles down called the sheaves. Obviously, in between all these piles will be excess, okay? And gleaners were not allowed to come and take from there, okay? He says, no, let her come and pick up from really the area you're still working, those parts that you're probably going to end up brewing together anyway. Just leave them. She can come and pick even from those plentiful spots amidst your work. Verse 16, and also, just in case, just in case there's a loophole there where his young men don't give enough out for Ruth and she doesn't take enough, he says, also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it on the ground for her to glean and then don't rebuke her for taking it. <laughs> this, is, this really is just over the top. This is an amazing act of grace, kindness, love, generosity, undeserved favor from Boaz. And this young men, old men, middle-aged men, all of us, this should characterize us as Boaz gives us this example. Men who, with what we have, we are kind, generous, open-hearted, and open-handed to those in need, especially looking out for, providing for, and protecting the women that God has put around us. <clears throat> now, uh, what we see, uh, I really just want to dig into this a little bit more and show that, and have a look that, uh, that, that in the Bible, that this pushes against, this story uh, pushes against for us, as does the whole Bible, pushes against what we might call prosperity theology and pushes against what we might call poverty theology. Both ungodly, both so sneaky in finding their way into Christian circles and the church. And so we'll spend a little bit of time of looking at them. Now, now we could call this uh, prosperity theology, this, this legalistic capitalism. And we could say this poverty theology is this, is this covetous socialism. Now, I'm not a political preacher. I'm not an economical speaker. But I'm going to speak to what I think the Word of God would speak wisdom into our lives on how we should view the world. Now, really, the... The two, uh, I'm a preacher, so I'm going after hearts here. Not economic systems, but your hearts. 
And what we see here is that, is that we, uh, <coughs> we have two real main camps that pop up in evangelicalism. Uh, one is sort of this, you're either rich, uh, you are, you know, God blesses those who love him and who work hard. And uh, if you help, you, you know, that, that old saying that, that if uh, God helps those who help themselves, you work hard, you keep what you make, you look after yourself, and, uh, and God blesses you, makes you rich all the time. And, and those who are poor are sort of under the curse of God. If you're poor, you're weak. They just need to learn to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps like I have. Poverty, somebody in this camp, this legalistic, capitalistic mindset, this prosperity theology mindset might say, poverty is a sign of ungodliness. If they were more godly, they would be more wealthy. That's this side. Then down onto the other end of the spectrum, we have those who think... <clears throat> The poor are those who God loves, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. How many times does God say that he looks after the poor in Scripture? God hates the, the selfish people who hoard wealth. They need to learn to give money to the poor. We should all, if you're faithful, like Jesus, be poor. They say that prosperity is a sign of ungodliness and that if they were more godly, they would be poor. And so you've got this sheer capitalism, which says, uh, and, and, and to, to this, it's a reality that that's not generous. That's not kind. Making and keeping and hoarding is not generous. It's not open-handed. It's not open-hearted. Okay, and, and I can excuse that because the law doesn't say that I have to be kind. The law just says I have to be legal. Well, I made this money. It's mine. Or you have this sheer ungodly Marxism that says that, that uh, and, and they, those people, they're not industrious. They're not working hard because, you know, kind people should just give me some or all of their cash. Be nicer. Give me your hard-earned money. I deserve it. I'm poor. Now, what, what we see is the biblical model of society shown to us in parts in the Old Testament and again commanded to our hearts in the New Testament is that, <clears throat> is that there is, uh, it address, you know, God's word addresses both economics and the heart. Economics and the heart. Because how we use money is a spiritual thing. Money is not evil. Money is not good. Money is a tool that shows where your heart is at. Now, in Scripture, I want to show that there's multiple categories because it's possible to be prosperous or rich and evil. Prosperity does not mean that you are blessed by God. Okay, we can have those who are prosperous, who are evil, selfish, unrighteous, wealth has been gained. These are men like uh, the evil priests and the kings in the Old Testament, Levi, the tax collector in the New Testament, the Pharisees in the New Testament. These are unrighteous men gaining wealth by unrighteous means, picking on the poor and doing illegal activity. But we also have righteous, wealthy people. We have unrighteous wealthy people, but the Bible has a, an amazingly enormous full category 
of people who are righteous and wealthy. Those who are industrious, who work hard, who, who are maybe aided by their, uh, by their inheritance from their parents. This is a good and godly thing. The people such as Abraham, uh, King David and King Solomon. Uh, we have other examples in, in Job. He was a wealthy man who was godly. Theophilus in the New Testament, who was a wealthy man and funded the mission trip of Luke and Paul. That's significant. We also have such men as Boaz who fall into this category, righteous wealth. So what the Bible would say to the wealthy is that you are not in sin for being wealthy. But Old Testament Deuteronomy 15 said, open your hand when the poor are in need and lend sufficiently. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19, New Testament says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that's pride, uh, proud and prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You may be rich, your hope and security is not in those riches. But set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, there we go, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the Bible's instructions to the rich. You're not in sin for having wealth, but you can use it sinfully. Have generosity, support the poor, welcome other people in through hospitality, funding kingdom endeavors. Blessed is the one who considers the poor, Psalm 41 starts out. So that's, that's one category. And then we have the other category, which shows us that, that there is such a thing as unrighteous evil people. Uh, sorry, of course, unrighteous poor people. So it's not enough to say that you're poor, therefore you must be the right, good victim who everybody else has taken advantage of. Actually, Scripture shows us that there's such a thing as those who are poor, who are evil, wasting money on gambling, wasting it on alcohol, on sinful pleasures, being lazy, no, having no work ethic, not being generous to others, even in their poverty, being stingy, and therefore they are unable to help others because they don't have the means to help other people, but they don't have the heart to help either. Now that's not all, because there is also in the Bible the category of the righteous who are poor. So we see it's not righteous and rich, sinful and poor, but it's not also the unrighteous wealthy who need to be thrown down from their ivory towers and, you know, this righteous poor people who need to rise up. No. We see that there is such a thing as righteous poverty. Those in a low social status, a poor family maybe. You, you had low education, very little opportunities. Or maybe you, you had a business that, that went down or, or a global economy crashed at no fault of your own. Maybe a natural disaster struck, you know, like a fire destroying your business. But in your heart, you are hardworking, productive, servant-hearted, responsible with money. You receive government aid, but don't become idle in that. 
and you surround yourselves with righteous people being willing to work. Now, now this is the biblical view of economics and moral uh, hearts. And, and this is actually informed by, and hear me on this, this is where the book of Ruth has continually been teaching us. This view is informed by the doctrine of providence. Because in the doctrine of providence, we know that, that God, is, God is behind all things working them to his plan. And so you should know, friend, whether poor or rich, by your own doing or because of your family, we know that the family that you're born into was God's choice. Because the doctrine of providence tells us that God is controlling all things, working all things on purpose to his glory. That, that the rich should therefore not be proud since it was God's grace that you were born into that family. And, and the poor should not be discontent and coveting the rich because you need to just bend the knee to God's providence. This is the family he's put you in. You can fight that. You'll get nowhere. It tells us that when one has a great investment and the other one flops and fails and falls into poverty... Though one who is prosperous should not become proud since it was God's own providence. That's how you need to see your wealth. The lot is cast into the lap. God controls its every outcome. But those who have lost need not to feel hopeless, but look to God for his providence, look to God for his provisions, and receive the help of others who would surround themselves to you and be helpful. This means that we, are not, we do not have a class battle. We do not have those who are rich and those who are poor. It's not like there's types of people. So, so, so often today's sort of cultural buzz says that there's a rich type of person and there's a poor type of person. Like that's an inherent value. But it's not. In the doctrine of providence, we see that in a single flick, in a single turning of the tables, in a single day or stock market crash, all who are rich can become desperately poor, and all who are poor can be risen up into enormous wealth. This is not a person thing. This is a God's providence thing. Will you deal with what God has given you in his providence faithfully, righteously, or sinfully, unfaithfully? That's the question. Rich look out with a generous open hand. How can I help? The rich in our church, are you looking to how you can build your own empire? Or are you looking how you might use your money to build the kingdom? And the poor among us, are you looking to God for provision and, and thanking him for those who are blessed and rich around you? Not to use them for gain, but work hard, faithfully trusting God for all that he would give. Ruth and Boaz are both godly, and they're both on opposite ends of the class spectrum. One rich and a leader, one poor and a foreigner. Both godly. Don't be discouraged wherever you are in between that. <clears throat> now, we, we, we're going to jump back into the text, having that sort of application for us. Let, let's look now at verse 17, and we'll, we'll uh, go gun-ho through now to the rest of the chapter. Verse 17, we're going to see Ruth's report back to Naomi. So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
And then she beat out what she had gleaned. That was what she did. And it was about an ephah of barley. Now that's about 13 kilograms. And a daily wage for somebody in those days, even a reaper, like an employed man doing that job, would make about half a kilo a day of wage. So she's just made in that moment about a month's worth of wages in one day. If she does that for the full eight weeks of the harvest, she's going to be sitting on about a two and a half year wage after one little season. Boaz has set her up well to make plenty of commission, great bonuses, very good income. So she, this is what the author wants you to see there. She went out empty-handed as she had come into Bethlehem empty-handed. She started the chapter poor, broke, and sad, but hopeful. And she's coming back to Naomi with a huge bag on her back to present to her mother-in-law, full, blessed, having received from the Lord. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw her and what she had gleaned. Here's, Ruth, uh, here's Naomi. She's been waiting all day. She sent Ruth off to the fields, which can be dangerous. I wonder if she found somewhere. I've been praying for her, but I'm, I'm nervous. I don't want to lose her. She's all I have left. Did she get beat up? It's late now. It's evening. The sun is down. Where is she? Where could she be? Why is she taking her so long? And there's Ruth walking into town an enormous bag of grain on her back. Ruth shows Naomi. Not only does she have this huge load, but also it says that she gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. Okay, She's not just carrying all these bags from Woolies of groceries, of all this blessing, right? A thousand bucks worth of groceries. She also pulls out of her bag. So Hungry Jack's ready to eat right now. Naomi is happy. Naomi is blessed. Naomi is excited and it comes out in what she says next. She just bursts out these three, three sentences. And, and her mother-in-law said to her, verse 19, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. She's just excited. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, My, the, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. How very interesting. Now, verse 20, uh, look at Naomi's reaction. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, that is, her or her dead husband and sons. Uh, Naomi said also to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We'll come back to that. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. That's meaning she's not just sticking around for the barley harvest, four weeks. She's also welcome to continue working it this way for the, the, the wheat harvest, another four weeks. <clears throat> That's a, an added welcome and blessing. And Naomi said, well, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so Ruth did just that, verse 23 tells us, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. 
So here this, this wraps up the chapter to us and actually recaps about eight weeks worth of drama. We spent all of chapter two looking at one day where Ruth met Boaz. And we see then that by the very last word of the last verse of chapter two, this has gone on for about eight weeks with no action, it seems, after that, with no development of the romantic story. And we'll pick up there next week. But I want to swing back to verse 20 and just read what Ruth said. In the second half of verse 20, Naomi also said to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, how many of you, if you're a parent and your child goes on a date and comes home, how many of you are not that excited to figure out that the guy she's dating or the gal he's dating is actually a relative? Like, like that's not a yeehaw moment. That's, that, that's not what we do anymore. I mean, sure, if you end up getting married, the, there's less name change paperwork to do if you already have the same last name. That's about the only silver lining I can find. No, you can't keep dating this guy. Okay, that's your father's nephew. This isn't going to work out. How many of you would not be like Naomi? <laughs> Excited. Tell me about him. Oh, he's generous. Oh, he's kind. He's funny. He's strong. He's attractive. A little bit older. He can take care of you. This is great. But tell me, is he related? <laughs> yes. He's a cousin? Oh, now we've hit the, we've hit the jackpot here. That, that's not our response. It's weird hearing that from Naomi. It's allowed to seem a little bit weird. Okay, but, but that happened back then. You found a gal. Turns out she's a cousin. That's, that's a perfect 10 back then. To, to marry somebody closely related to you, share the funds, right? It keeps the wedding small because everybody's, uh, you know, each other's family members. A little bit awkward. But in fact, even in this situation, that's not entirely what's happening because Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Boaz's cousin, you know, Boaz's relative. It's her father-in-law who is Boaz's relative. There's not even a blood relation. But what Naomi is really getting at here, not so much the, uh, the, the uh, romantic side of it yet, but what she's getting at is that he, as she says in the last word of verse 20, he can be one of our redeemers. Redeemer. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25, which show us the reality of the Israelite custom called the kinsman redeemer. Now, the way that this worked was that when property was lost by a family, this is told to us in Leviticus 25, you lose your property, you have to sell it because of debt. Your close relatives, now relatives being that word kinsmen, right? Your family, your kindred, they were responsible to go and buy back your field for you, what they would call redeeming the land, to bring it back to the member of the family. Or when someone came into great debt, and this is what they would do back then as well in Leviticus 25, you could sell yourself to work off your debt as a slave. And, and if you did that, it was the responsibility, if they heard about it, of one of your family members, your kinsmen, to come and buy you back, what they called redeeming you back from slavery. 
so that you could be reinstated to your position, so that all that was owed of your account could be paid and you would come back to your status. Or thirdly, when a man died and left behind a widow without any children, this is in Deuteronomy 25, it was the responsibility of the closest family member to marry that woman and have a child with her and name that child after the original husband so that the name of that man would not be rubbed out of the face of the earth so that he could be remembered. He could still have a legacy and his whole family line would not stop. Well, Naomi is excited because in all of these instances, Ruth being a widow, having her family land sold and being in poverty, they can look to a wealthy uh, kinsman or a wealthy family member and say under the obligation and, the, and, and the, the express demand of the law, maybe not exactly to Boaz because he's so distant, but they can bring the law to him and, and ask, would you redeem us out of our poverty by us back? Out of our landlessness, buy back for us our family land. And out of our low estate, through marriage, through who, who our family has ended, through marriage, would you, would you bring us back to, to fruitfulness? To have generations come after us, make us mothers again, is in the heart of Naomi. And, and this is where the story ends this week. That we are left wondering... Will Boaz fulfill that obligation? That is not truly a full, weighty obligation on him because he's so distant, but will he take that opportunity that the law produces? Will he jump at it? Will he restore the family line of Elimelech? Will he bring back that family into wholeness in their land and supply to them riches? For that, we have to tune in next week. Same channel, same time and figure out what he does and doesn't do, what he has to do to get it done. And it's all very exciting, very romantic and beautiful. But I said to you at the beginning of this sermon that no, no preaching out of the Old Testament is complete, fulfilled, or finished until we see in this story the good news of its pointing to Jesus in the gospel. And, and today we see that just so clearly being foreshadowed in this text is the cross-shaped gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that we, we like Elimelech, have sinned, lived in sin, made excuses for sin, and gone off and lived in spiritually, as it were, a foreign land far from God. That you and I have disobeyed and failed to meet God's holy standards. Every one of us, friends. That we, like Ruth, have lived our lives serving false gods of self and comfort and sexual fornication and materialism. And we have been distant to our true creator. Distant and apart from his covenant of love and faithfulness. Like Naomi, we have felt the weight of sin, the guilt of our unrighteousness, separation from other people and especially from God. We have felt the weight of loss and maybe even found yourself in hopelessness 
As you look in yourself, you find and found before Christ hopelessness. We are, every one of us, condemned by the law of God and rejected rightfully by the people of God. We do not belong. We are wandering this earth under the judgment and and damnation of God. And all we have to wait for as we look into the future is damnation, condemnation, judgment, and, and satisfying divine just wrath for all of eternity without hope in this world. We are slaves to sin, unable to make our situation better, unable to improve ourselves before God. That is the reality. But God, God in his loving kindness, in his grace, his favor, his generosity, he did not consider our worthiness, he did not consider what we deserved, he did not also consider what it would cost him, but he came to redeem us. He considered us in love and he came as a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, we call him, who was born under the law of God, obeying it fully, living completely like a true human being. This God taking on human flesh, a human nature. And in this way, he was like us, a relative of the human race, truly our kinsman, a member of our family. And being so, because he was a human, a kinsman, he could represent us before God. He could fully satisfy and complete all of the legal demands on us, making our payment for us, fulfilling all the demands against us, pleasing God who made those demands wiping away our sin, this was Jesus becoming one of us. And because he was God also, he had all the wealth in the world to do it. He would not be found wanting to pay off the spiritual debt, the sinful debt of millions of sons of Adam. This is the the richness of Jesus, the worthiness, the value of Jesus that he could be given as a blood sacrifice, and cover plentifully the atonement needed, cover completely the sin with leftover value infinite in his riches to to, to redeem, pay for, and bring in every sinner that will ever turn to him from sin, place their faith in him, trust in him, and follow him with all of your life. The proof of this is that God raised Jesus up from the dead after slaying him for our sin. And in his heavenly throne right now, he sits willing to give grace and kindness and favor to anybody that turns to him. And Christians, this is the motivation, the power, the justification for you. Live in the footsteps of Christ, knowing that all of the law has been satisfied and you with a heart of God, can live out his commandments. Why don't you bow with me and I'll pray over us. Father, it's a blessing to go through your word and it is a blessing to see in this word both examples to live by and also, God, the gospel of Jesus foreshadowed. 
Thank you that in Jesus you have wiped away our debts, made us royal family members with him. Thank you, God, that you now empower us to live for you. And may we do so, whether we are rich, whether we are poor, whatever our circumstance, may we kneel before your providence and live faithfully as Christians as you have demanded us to be. We love you, God. We thank you for Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.